You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Well, you may remember the last few times I was with you, um, I was looking at the subject of the return of Christ. And I, I, let me just point out something that I said in the past to you so that hopefully you remember it and it stays with you. If you want to learn from the Bible about the return of Christ, where do you go? I know that if I were to ask that question to lots of people, one answer would come back, will you go to the book of Revelation? Because that's a book that talks about the return of Christ, and so it does. But remember this. Go first to Matthew chapter 24 and 25, which is where Jesus talked plainly about his return. Understand Matthew 24 and 25 first before going anywhere else. Now, we looked at Matthew 24 on three different occasions uh, a few months ago when I was last with you. I can't remember exactly when it was, maybe just a couple of months ago. Uh, we looked at, at them under, under these headings. What will happen before Jesus returns, because Jesus talks about that in Matthew chapter 24. He basically says to his disciples, he's going to leave them, he's going to go away, but he will come back again. But this is the sort of world that you will have to live in until I return. It's a world that will have wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and pestilences, diseases, COVID-19, if you like, and all sorts of other things, and persecution. And it has always been that way. Ever since Jesus spoke those words, that's the world that his church has had to live in. That's the way it will be until he returns. Then we ask the question, what will happen when he returns? And we looked at a certain truth that Jesus mentioned here about the time of his return. No one knows about the time. That's a fundamental thing that we have to remember. And many people, too many people, have forgotten and tried to predict dates. But it will be sudden. It will be visible. It will be audible with a trumpet sound and so on. And everyone will be raised to stand before him in judgment. It will all happen together. You read in chapter 25, we'll come to this, God willing, the next time I come back, that when the Son of Man comes, that's plain, isn't it? When Jesus returns, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him. I can't see anywhere in Scripture any teaching of two comings of Christ that some people would, would propagate, that, that Jesus is coming secretly, in what they call the rapture for his church, and then a thousand years later, he'll come to judge everyone else. I can't see that anywhere in Scripture. Trumpets, loud cry, every eye will see him. There's nothing secret about the coming of Christ. So that's when he returns. And then the, the last time we looked at how are we to be ready for his return. And I, I dealt with that under three B's. B-E. Be converted. We must be converted. We must, if we're Christians, be faithful. And we must seek to live holy lives. Be holy. Be converted, be faithful, and be holy. 
Now, we're living in what the Bible calls the last days. You sometimes hear those phrase, that phrase used wrongly, as if, as if we're living in the last days and people three or four or five hundred years ago were not living in the last days. The last days is a, a phrase that the Bible uses for the whole period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. The writer to the Hebrews uh, could say, as, as he began his letter, that in the past God revealed himself to us through his prophets in various ways at various times, but in these last days he has revealed himself through Christ. So the writer to the Hebrews in the first century was living in the last days, and so are we. And, and, and as you think about that, and, and as you think about what, what we see all around us, and as we think about our own lives, as we think about, and this is perhaps an old person's thing, isn't it, the brevity of life? You look back, do you look back, as I do? I look back over 70 years, 50, 60, 70 years. I think, where the, where's the time gone? And you look at death, which is coming ever closer, isn't it? That's just a fact, a fact of, of what we are as human beings, the brevity of life, the certainty of death. We're living in the last days. And add to that the teaching of the Bible that at the end of these last days, Jesus will return and we will always all stand before him in judgment. When you think of those things and put them together, ought we not to think of them and think of eternal things and think of the return of Christ far more often than we do? Matthew 24, 25 deals with his return and um, Matthew 24 we've already dealt with in past times. Matthew 25 is the same discourse. There's no break there. I read from uh, Matthew 24 verse 30, at that time the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then when you come into chapter 25, you, you find the same phrase, at that time. It's the same discourse about the return of Christ. And in chapter 25, Jesus told three parables to teach us further truths about his return. I want to look at the first one this morning, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. The second one, the parable of the talents tonight. And then the last part of the passage, the scene of judgment that is described at the end of chapter 5, when I come back, God willing. They're all dealing with the same thing. You see the same idea of the return of Jesus, for example, in the parable of the ten virgins, the wise and foolish virgins, while they were on their way, the foolish ones were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. He came back. The, the parable of the talents. The parable of the, of the talents. After a long time, the master of those servants returned. And then the last passage in, in this chapter, when the Son of Man comes. Arrives, returns, comes. They're all dealing with this whole subject of the coming again of Jesus Christ. The parable of the wise and foolish virgins then. The subject, of course, of this parable is a wedding, which is appropriate for our Lord's return, as I was saying to the boys and girls. Revelation 19, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, a picture of heaven. After Jesus returns after the day of judgment, there will be that great wedding supper of the Lamb. 
heaven itself for God and Jesus and all his people. Now, let's understand, first of all, as we look at this, that Jewish weddings back at the time of Jesus were not like our weddings. And in fact, in every society, wedding, wedding customs always change, don't they? I know they've changed in my lifetime here. When I was married almost 50 years ago, when I was married 50 years ago, <laughs> doesn't that date me? Um, we had our wedding ceremony about 12.30, I think it was, in Portadown. And then we had a meal in a hotel outside Armagh, which no longer exists. And then we just wanted to get away on our honeymoon. And uh, we were away about five or six o'clock to the airport. Nowadays, of course, customs have changed. And you have the wedding at various times of the day even. And, and, and then perhaps a meal and then perhaps an evening celebration or whatever you call it. And maybe the bride and groom don't go away for another day or two, stay in a hotel somewhere, and then head off on their honeymoon. Things change. I think it was the same in Bible times, actually, because you, you, you get an impression of different, different customs. Uh, one of the customs seems to be in that at the time of the wedding, the bridegroom goes to the house of the bride to escort the bride and her companions to his home. That probably fits this parable best of all, I think. Matthew Henry in his commentary says that that could happen even late at night. The bridegroom would turn up at the bride's home and, and take his bride uh, to his home. Although in this parable we read that, that the kingdom of heaven would be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. They didn't wait for him to come to the bride's home. They went out to meet him somewhere. And another scenario that the Bible speaks about is in the wedding psalm, psalm number 45. Listen to verses 13 to 15. It's a royal wedding, this, and you can get an idea of how it seemed to happen. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. Here's the bride, a princess here, dressed in her wedding gown. In embroidered garments, she is led to the king. The king doesn't come for her. His, the bridegroom doesn't come for her. She is led to the king, and her virgin companions follow her and are brought to you. And they are led with joy and gladness and enter the palace of a king. Was the bride led to her groom, or did the groom come and get his bride? It seems that that second alternative is probably better fitting for this parable that Jesus told here. But the bride and her companions then wait for the groom, or else they went forth to meet the groom, maybe at the groom's house, and they wait for him there. And the story goes on that he's late. He's very late. And they all go to sleep. All of them, you notice in verse 5, the wise and the foolish. And then a cry goes up. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. That five of them have lamps but no oil. And the others have oil for their lamps. And the, the foolish ones who have no oil say to the, the wise ones, give us some of your oil for our lamps. And they say, no, we, we wouldn't maybe have enough for all of us. You better go out and buy some oil. Now it was midnight. Where were they going to buy oil at that time of the night? But they went away to try and fetch some oil. And as they went away, or as they were away, the bridegroom came. And they all go into the wedding feast. Bride, bridegroom, and the five wise virgins. 
and the door is shut. It's a very stark phrase that, isn't it? A very stark phrase. And a little later, the five foolish ones who've got oil come and the door is shut and they knock and they call out and they, and they say, Sir, sir, open the door for us. But he says, I tell you the truth. Verily I say unto you in the old-fashioned language, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour. Now that's the story. What does it mean? I am indebted to Bishop J.C. Ryle. Do you know Bishop Ryle? If you ever get any books of Bishop Ryle in Treasure, he was the Bishop of Liverpool, Anglican Bishop of Liverpool at the end of the 1800s, a very godly man. He's written lots of commentaries on the Bible, uh, expository thoughts on the Gospel, for example, and I am indebted to his thoughts here about this particular parable. First of all, let's be careful that we see the main things in this parable and, and, and don't try to read into it maybe things that aren't there. That's a good lesson for all parables, by the way. Most parables, there's a, a main lesson that you, you need to get and, and don't be sidelined into trying to interpret the details. Now, there are some where Jesus himself gives us an interpretation of the details and that's different. But for most of them, concentrate on the main teaching. Uh, Alistair Begg, an American pastor uh, whom I've met in the past, he, he, he's Scottish but now he works in America, and he says the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. So look for the main things and the plain things in the parable. I mean, for example, uh, there are those who try to interpret what the oil means in this parable. And we know that oil in the Bible is a, often a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The, the high priest, Aaron, the first high priest, was anointed with oil by Moses, and the oil ran down his hair and his beard and onto his coat. And that was a symbol of the Spirit of God being given to him. Jesus was anointed at his, at his baptism. He was filled with the Spirit. Oil is a picture in the Bible of the Spirit of God, but are we to look on it as narrowly as that here? Well, the, the analogy actually breaks down when you go on down the, the parable because whenever the ten bridegrooms all woke, or ten bridesmaids, sorry, all woke up and the foolish ones had no oil, they said to the wise, give us some of your oil. And the wise said, well, you better go and buy some for yourself. Well, if you're going to say that the oil represents the Spirit of God, can we give that to one another? Can we go and buy the Spirit of God? No, of course we can't. So the analogy breaks down. So let's not try to get bogged down in details as to, like, for example, what does the oil mean? Let's leave that to one side. Let's try and see the main things and the plain things. And, and Bishop Ryle begins like this. He says, here's the plain thing, the main thing at the start. There is a clear distinction between the two groups in the parable, the wise and the foolish virgins. Now, I think we are to understand that all of these virgins would have considered themselves to be friends of the bride and the bridegroom. But there was a big difference. Some had oil and some had none. So let's just say, in the first place, that the thing we see here is that whatever these virgins profess to be, and they all profess to be friends of the bride and the groom. 
yet there was a fundamental difference between them. Let me read Ryle at this point, what he says here. The second coming of Christ will find his church a mixed body, containing evil as well as good, he says. And he goes on like this. The professing church is compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. All of them had lamps, but only five had oil in their vessels to feed the flames. All of them professed to have one object in view, but only five were truly wise, and the rest were foolish. The visible church of Christ is just in the same condition. All its members are baptized in the name of Christ, but not all really hear his voice and follow him. All are called Christians and profess to be of the Christian religion, but not all have the grace of the Spirit in their hearts and really are what they profess to be. He goes on to say, I believe the ten virgins represent the two great classes which compose the visible church of Christ, the converted and the unconverted, the false professors and the real Christians, the hypocrites and the true believers, the foolish builders and the wise builders, the good fish and the bad. He's referring to other parables there, the living and the dead, the wheat and the tares. They're a picture of the church, which is a mixed company of the real and the false, the genuine and those who are not genuine, those who are truly converted and those who are not. So when Jesus returns, this parable illustrates this very solemn truth. There will be a, a, a number of people, a large number of people, I fear, who profess to know him, but they don't know him at all. They're foolish. Isn't that unmistakable from the parable? They all claimed to be friends of the bride. The bride of Christ is the church. They all claim to be part of the church of Christ. But Jesus said clearly to the, to the five foolish ones, I don't know you. They weren't Christians at all. That's plain to be seen from this parable. I don't know you. Clear distinction between the two groups, first of all. Secondly, notice this. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. That's what we read in verse 5. In our society, in our marriages, bridegrooms are not usually late. I, I did so many weddings in Castle Dawson and Curran, and I know the pattern. The bridegroom and his best man is normally there, and I take them up to the front before the ceremony is due to start and set them in their seat where they know they're supposed to sit and behave themselves and be good uh, throughout the, the ceremony. And sometimes the bride's late. I had one that was almost half an hour late, thanks to the photographer who kept her uh, in all sorts of poses until she got into the church. But the bridegroom's not normally late. However, in this parable, it was the bridegroom who was a long time in coming. And that's what it seems to Christian folk when we think of the return of Christ. After all, it's 2,000 years since Jesus spoke these words. It's 2,000 years since he said to his disciples that he was going away and he would come again, that he might receive them unto himself, John 14. And because of this delay, there have been those who have scoffed, made fun of the very idea 
of the return of Jesus. And sometimes even Christian people have, have begun to perhaps wonder, to, to put it even at that level, to wonder, when is this going to happen? Is it going to happen? Peter uh, saw that happening in, in those scoffers in his day in Second Peter chapter 3 uh, and verse 3. He says this, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they will say, where is this coming? He promised. You Christians, you're always talking about the return of Christ. Where is it? Sure, life has gone on, they went on to say. It's always gone on the same way from the beginning of time. They were wrong there, of course. And Peter points that out to them. It's always gone on this way. And it always will go on. <laughs> In our generation now, people would have a hesitation about that, wouldn't they? Talk of global warming and nuclear catastrophe and, and all sorts of things. People would wonder, is life always going to go on the same way? But for many years, it did seem to be that way. And so the scoffers say, where is this promise of his coming? But then Peter says this, don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a thousand years is like one day, and one day like a thousand years. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He will keep his promise and come again. But he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God is patient so that men might repent, but he will come. It might seem that he's a long time coming to us, but no, it's his time. Everything that happens is in God's time. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, that was God's time. When Jesus died on the cross at Passover time, that was God's time. In the fullness of time, in God's time, God sent his son, born of a woman, Paul says, writing to the Galatians. It was God's timing, and God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world, and he will keep his promise. He might seem a long time to us, but it's his appointed day. Third thing, while the virgins waited, they all slept. Isn't that interesting? They all slept, the wise as well as the foolish. The virgins who had oil as well as those who had not they seem to have lost their sense of expectancy. They stopped watching and waiting for him. Watching and waiting is a common theme in these two passages in Matthew's gospel. Just, just like when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he, and he told his disciples to watch and pray. So he tells all his people, watch and pray and be ready for that great day when Jesus will come back again. We should be looking forward to it. Even the five wise virgins fell asleep. Remember the Apostle Paul spoke of a crown of righteousness being laid up for him, and not for him only, but for all those who long for or look for him, his appearing. Isn't it true, men and women, that in the professing Christian church today, we have taken our eyes largely off that appearing. We don't think about it so much. We're so taken up with earthly things the things of our earthly lives. How much time do we spend thinking of heavenly things, thinking of the second coming of Christ? Are we looking forward to it? Do we meditate on it? Are, are, are we anticipating it? Even the five wise went to sleep. I think John Bunyan was thinking of that 
when in his book he talks about a place called the Enchanted Ground. Have you read Bunyan's book yet? I've told you about it. I have. If you haven't, get it and read it. Pilgrims, Christian and Hopeful, were on the delectable mountains with the shepherds, the, 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 those who were guiding them in the faith. And one of the things the shepherds said to them, toward the end of their journey, don't go to sleep on the enchanted ground. Sure enough, later on they came across this, this part of the journey where the, where the way to the celestial city went through a, a, a place where the air was heavy. And Hopeful said to Christian, Oh, I'm so tired. We should lie down in here and sleep for a little while. Christian said, No, no. Do you not remember what the shepherd said? Don't go to sleep on the enchanted ground. And I think Bunyan is warning us of the danger, especially as we go on in the Christian life, especially as we come toward the end of it, of, of becoming careless, of going to sleep, of taking our eyes off Jesus and his return. Even the five wise virgins went to sleep. They all went to sleep. I used to go to a mission hall years and years ago. When there was an old man called Billy, he always prayed in the prayer meeting, and he had his phrases, as many of us do, of course, but I can still remember, he said, Lord, help us to live with eternity's values in view. And we don't do that so often. We take our eyes off eternity. We go to sleep. But the last thing. The, the first thing, the clear distinction between the two groups in the parable. One represents true believers. The other represents those who only profess to be believers. The second thing, the bridegroom was a long time coming. The third thing, while they waited, all the virgins went to sleep. The last thing, he came. The bridegroom came. The feast began and the door was shut. He came at an unexpected time, midnight, midnight. Although, although Matthew Henry says that that didn't seem to be uncommon in those days. And when Christ comes again, he will take this world by surprise. People will not be expecting him. Even some Christian people will not be expecting him. But those who were ready with the oil, those who were the true believers, went in with him to the feast. And Israel says, true Christians will receive a rich reward for all they have suffered for the Master's sake. But the others were left outside, although they sought admission earnestly. They thought they were his friends. They thought they were part of his church. They expected to be with him at the wedding celebrations. But they were sadly mistaken. It's very hard to think of any more solemn words than these in all of Scripture. Let me put them together with, with some words that Jesus said toward the beginning of his ministry. This was toward the end. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount where he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who professes. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons? and perform many miracles, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Lord, Lord, 
open the door to us. I tell you the truth. I don't know you. Those words back in Matthew 7, I've often thought about them in my time in the ministry. Have we not prophesied in your name? The modern equivalent of prophesying is doing what I'm doing now. Do you know what Jesus was saying there? Do you see the solemnity of it? There will be people on that day when he comes again who will say, Lord, I have preached your word. And he will say, I don't know you. There will be people who will say, if I can extend the illustration, Lord, I was an elder for many years in your church. I don't know you. I taught Sunday school for many years. I don't know you. This is the importance of these words. Lord, open to us. But the door was shut, and he said, I don't know you. I don't know you. So what's the main lesson here? Well, surely it is that we are to watch and be ready. That's how it ends up, isn't it? Keep watch. You don't know the day or the hour. We live in a fast-moving, materialistic, largely godless world where most people are just taken up with the things of this world and few, even among believers sometimes, stop to give much thought to death and the return of Christ and judgment and eternity. So let me urge you all here this afternoon, let's take our eyes off this world for a moment or two. Let's look into the eternal world. Let's remember that Jesus will come again suddenly at an hour we don't expect him. Let's look carefully at our hearts, men and women. Don't be going back to a past profession. Don't be going back to, to just a decision that you made in the past. Look carefully at your heart. And ask God the Spirit to help you to search your heart. Are you truly in Christ? Are you resting upon him alone for salvation? Have you been changed by the grace of God? Are you truly repentant? Are you truly part of his church? Because how terrible it would be to be mistaken. To stand before him and to hear him say, I don't know you. Let's pray together. Thank you.